everyone, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I know it's only been like two weeks since I said I was going on a hiatus, but this is something slightly different. Instead of bringing you an interview or a continuation of the now-ended Season 3, I instead wanted to do a little mini-episode, a little bonus episode. Obviously, the at least in the United States in particularly, and that's where this episode's focus will be, the Writers Guild strike, WGA, and SAG-AFTRA, those strikes have been in the news a lot. And really it comes down to those groups, actors, writers, being in unions. And obviously you see that in so many other professions around film as well. Directors Guild of America, for instance, DGA, very recently, three months ago or so, signed an agreement with the studios as well, uh, actually avoiding a strike. And it often leads to the question, especially with all of this news, why don't composers have a union? I mean, maybe even more broadly, a lot of people don't realize that that's even the case, assuming, as with almost every other aspect of the film industry, that composers are unionized. But here in the U.S., at least, they're not. And I think it also corresponds to a lot of the articles we've been seeing over the last couple years, things like lack of credit, short deadlines, long hours, low pay, things like that. And now a union wouldn't necessarily affect or solve all of those issues, but it could certainly help a little bit. But what does a union do here? What sort of benefit could it give to composers? It could address some of those questions, some of those aspects, things like certain minimum basic rights, minimum payments, things like that, working hours, deadlines. There was an effort back about 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, where I think their only two real asks were to have health care and have a pension. Basically, a, a group of composers had taken that to the studios, asking for recognition of a union and having those being really the two benefits. And even that got pushed back from the studios, and, and that effort failed, and I'll, I'll mention that in a few minutes. But also things like publishing rights, rights to exploit their work, and really just a, a broader level of artistic control, or what's sometimes called moral rights for future uses, which is often the case when, let's say, a, a subsequent adaptation, sequel, prequel, etc., wants to use pre-existing thematic material. Composer doesn't necessarily have the rights to that music itself, and often a, a studio can have full control over what themes and to what extent they're used. Now, sometimes the, quote, moral right is giving the original composer, if they're not the composer on the subsequent adaptation or sequel, etc., the opportunity to come in and bless the use of their prior themes, what they'd previously written. But of course, a lot of this is hypothetical. Like I said, there is no composer's union in the U.S., and I've read that composers are the only, quote, creatives in film and TV that aren't unionized. Not a term that I love, but it's one that you'll see in articles on occasion. Animation is a little different in that there are other groups in film and TV that aren't unionized. I don't know what the status is, but I've read that VFX artists are in the process, at least as of a few months ago. And oddly, even musicians performing on the scores are part of a union, and that unit actually covers things like orchestration and conducting. But this wasn't always the case. Back in the 50s, 
there was the Composers and Lyricists Guild of America. It started in 1953, and it became a union in 1955. It covered composers of film and TV in the United States. Famously, from what I've read, it didn't really have a lot of power. It wasn't really able to get a ton done for composers, but it was there, and it created at least some leverage, some bargaining power. What ended up happening is they actually had a strike in the early 1970s, primarily, I believe, if I'm remembering right, in an effort to allow the composers to retain their copyright for their scores. And so there was a, a two-month strike in, I think, 1970, 1971, very ineffective. I think the union really wasn't able to have a protracted strike. They didn't have the money, they didn't have the funding. And a couple big composers, Elmer Bernstein and Henry Mancini in particular, funded it a lot. When that strike was broken, they then sued the big studios, I think six, eight, ten of them, for antitrust purposes in a case called Elmer Bernstein versus Universal Pictures. Started in 1971. It went on for eight years. And eventually it settled in 1979. While the composers weren't able to get full copyright of their scores, they were able to get certain concessions from the studios, effectively certain rights to what's called in the IP world to exploit their scores. Exploiting meaning economically, being able to use it for other purposes. I read a few law review articles on this issue and on the second issue, the NLRB case that I'll talk about. It's really where the bulk of the good information is. You'll see some articles floating around online from various websites and publications, but they tend to be quite skimpy. The article that I read particularly on this case was from the mid-80s, so it had been about five, six years since that settlement had happened. As of the writing of that article, there was one instance of a composer being able to actually utilize the exploitation rights granted in the Elmer Bernstein settlement. It did solidify and grant composers certain additional rights in their music, but the flip side came in the composers being able to get that concession in part by arguing that they were independent contractors instead of employees. In doing so, they effectively argued that, and this is, this is sort of broader in United States copyright law in general, that as an independent contractor, they should keep the rights to their music. Oftentimes, if you're an employee and you make something for your employer, it is your employer's property. And so that was a big distinction. So they took a stance in trying to get these additional rights that they were independent contractors. Now, why does that matter? Well, fast forward, shortly thereafterwards, the CLGA, Composers and Lyricists Killed of America, the then Composers Guild, the Composers Union, effectively dissolved. It ran out of money, so it sort of fell apart. And shortly afterwards, the Society of Composers and Lyricists, the SCL, this is a group that's still around, then tried to fill the void and become the new Composers Union. Really, the key, one of the key issues of whether in the U.S. you can be a union or not is whether your members are employees or independent contractors. If they're employees, they can unionize. If they're independent contractors, they're not eligible to do so. 
And now you can see how the stance taken in the Bernstein case was problematic. So what happens is if you want to start a union, part of the process is having recognition from the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. That's a governmental body in the U.S. that oversees unions in most industries, oversees them, handles union and labor disputes, etc. But you have to effectively get their authorization that you can form a union. And so I think the SCL started the unionization process in about 1982. And in 1984, in a case called Aaron Spelling Productions versus the SCL, Society Composers and Lyricists, there was a decision from the NLRB. Now, I haven't been able to find the text of the decision itself, but I did find a law review article from a journal from the Loyola Law School, Loyola in Chicago, just down the road from me, that seems to have a very comprehensive discussion of the NLRB's decision. Effectively, the NLRB ruled that composers, they were independent contractors, and therefore they weren't eligible to unionize. I won't get into the nuts and bolts of the NLRB's decision-making process. There are a ton of different factors that can go into determining whether a profession is an employee or an independent contractor. One that the NLRB focused on particularly was the employers or the commissioning companies, commissioning entities, right to control. And so the more control that somebody has over someone that they hire, the more likely it is that the hired person is an employee rather than an independent contractor. And the NLRB apparently looked at a number of different factors, balanced them all, and said, yeah, in these instances, while a studio can control the final product, they can say, ah, we'd rather have a, a score be more jazzy than you know, more symphonic, etc. They don't have control over the individual steps of the process. And now, before you start sending me an email, or DMing me on Twitter and saying, hey, the studio really has control over any aspect if they want. I'm just saying what the decision was. And that is really a pushback that came about afterwards that some of the reasoning in the NLRB's decision was not entirely correct. And there are a number of other factors that they could have looked at that supposedly they did not fully consider. Ultimately, they made their decision, 1984, killed the unionization effort. And actually, I don't know if the NLRB's decision even explicitly reference the Bernstein case in the article I read. It's about a nine-page, small-font article. I don't think that case is mentioned. But even still, it's, it's easy to see where the thought process comes from. So really, that issue kind of put a nail in the coffin for composer unionization efforts in the United States, at least. Now, of course, that was, at this point, nearly 40 years ago. I think the NLRB now is considered a more labor, more union-friendly entity than it was in the mid-80s. Given the makeup of government, Reagan presidency at the time, it's not particularly surprising. But is it union-friendly enough to have a different decision? Hard to say. One of the issues making it particularly difficult is it's an expensive process. 
It can cost, I've read, hundreds of thousands of dollars to even get to that point, and there's no guarantee of success, especially given the past history. I do want to get to what the future outlook might be, but before that, there's one other caveat that I've seen the composer Brian Ralston in particular talk about. He's got like a 20-minute video just on this issue. I'll give a very brief overview because it's another interesting caveat, but it is in work-for-hire agreements. So these agreements are typically created when an employer asks their employee to create something for the employer. Let's say a piece of software, for instance. So even though it is a creation by the employee, this agreement, work-for-hire agreement, effectively, very broad view, says that the employee is creating it on behalf of, for the benefit of the employer, and it becomes the employer's property afterwards. Once made, the employer is treated as having made it. This is the thread throughout all of these different topics of the difference between an employee and an independent contractor. So if, you've, if you're listening really carefully and you're thinking about this, you'll go, hey, Nick, aren't composers independent contractors? Shouldn't they then not fall into this? Shouldn't in these situations, if the employee is doing a work-for-hire agreement, making something on behalf of their employer and it becomes their employer's, if you're an independent contractor, shouldn't you not be bound by this type of agreement? And normally, in almost every situation, you'd be right. Copyright law in the U.S. would say, nope, you don't fall into this. What you're creating, even if it's on someone's behalf, is by default yours unless the two of you agree differently. However, under U.S. copyright law, there are nine exceptions. One of those exceptions is if an independent contractor is creating something on someone else's behalf for a film or other audiovisual work. Sounds pretty specific. And so, when a composer is creating a score for a studio, for a director, whomever, whether it be for film, TV, documentary, they're falling under the work-for-hire criteria. And so, even though they're an independent contractor, they don't explicitly own the copyright. Because of that, the, the composer kind of gets squished from multiple perspectives, multiple directions. And so, you know, what's next here? With the ongoing strikes in the film and TV industry in the U.S. right now, a lot of composers are still pushing to have another unionization effort. Like I said, the makeup of the NLRB is different now than it was 40 years ago. As you've seen in the United States, the Supreme Court, always willing to change its mind, the NLRB, no different. Perhaps now as well, the, the rights of a composer, the working conditions have deteriorated since the early 80s, but it's also expensive. It's expensive, it's time-consuming, and it requires getting a lot of composers on the same page, assuming they could have a union, being an agreement as to what it would do, what they want to get out of it. And it's, it's difficult where, as in these other artistic industries that have unions, there's such a discrepancy between the top and the bottom in composers. And I'm saying that not from a seal perspective, but from a, a position. Take your random composer making indie films, short films, etc., 
versus uh, a John Williams, a Hans Zimmer. There's a huge discrepancy between what they want from a, you know, an economic perspective, a work condition perspective, healthcare, pension, etc. And so it seems like every 10 years or so, there's a, another push for a union. There's one in 93, there's one in the late 90s, there's one in about 2010, 2011. Every single one obviously has failed. Here we are another decade later or so. Given the pattern, seems like the time for another push. Whether it happens, who knows? It'll be interesting to see. This is seems like a, an environment ripe for another push, but whether that's a, a push that actually creates progress or is something in vain, there's only one way to find out, and is that worth it? That's really the question. Not for me to say. And now on that same topic, if you don't listen to Right on Cue from The Spool... It's another podcast featuring interviews with composers from my friend Clint Worthington, also in Chicago. Who'd have thought two composer interview podcasts all from the same city? Weird coincidence there. But I know that he's been thinking about having perhaps a roundtable Q&A, something like that, on Right on Cue featuring composers talking about unions more broadly. I hope that goes through. That would be a really interesting perspective, and it would give, frankly, a far better, far more informed set of thoughts and opinions as to the current environment, the current thoughts behind a composer union, what it could get, what these various composers would want to get out of it, and the chances of it, and whether there's enough people interested. I can speculate, but I don't know how useful that opinion is. And that's really why I've tried to just give a a viewpoint, an overview of the history and what has gone on previously. It's more useful for someone like me to recite facts and prior opinions of others who are more informed than to really give an opinion on something in which it's not my business. I hope this has been a little useful. If you have any questions, let me know if there's anything, anything you want to know, anything that I didn't cover. Like I said, there's a lot more in-depth nuts and bolts that I could get into, but this has already gone on about twice as long as I wanted, so I spared you from all of those. If you think I got anything wrong, God, I hope not, but if I did, also let me know, and... Keep looking. Eventually, I'll have a, a couple one-off interviews here and there. I was supposed to have one a couple days ago, actually. That one will come maybe in the next few weeks. We'll see. So, you'll hear from me soon.